it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad to be back, back with you because so much is going on and because my vacation's over. I don't really take many uh, vacations, but I never take the days in a row. But I decided to do it, uh, and I knew nothing would ever slow down, especially when you have a nonstop investigation into Trump and nonstop investigation into Hunter, and both sides seem to be ignoring each other. And in a race uh, for 2024, and, and, uh, endlessly intriguing. Oh, so we have Jonathan Turley standing by and Rich Lowry at the bottom of the hour, editor of National Review, and the number for you, one 408 So before we go any further, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm going to tell you, I don't think Joe Biden is the nominee in 24. I think it's a health thing. I think it's the Hunter Biden thing. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but I just think that's the way it's playing out. I don't think Trump or Biden are on that ticket. Really? What does that all mean for 2024? And I'm talking about... Uh, what the overall race means. Could it be the mood of the nation that changes the direction for both parties? Because right now, only 23% think we're heading in the right direction. Let's just say it's bigger than anybody's court cases or anyone's crack-addicted son. Number two. Well, every day this bribery scandal becomes more credible. Not only was Joe Biden on the phone over 20 times with people, including the Burisma executives, uh, talking about uh, whatever, even though the president denied that he never spoke to any of these people. Uh, there you go, James Comer, talking about what's happening with the Burisma, talking about what's happening with Devin Archer, now going to prison, and with Hunter Biden, that sooner or later we'll get some type of deal or a trial. Compare Trump thrice indictments to the Biden family's mystery millions. Hunter selling the Biden brand. Joe's phone calls into his son's business dealings and possible role in American foreign policy. We cut through the cheerleading and give you the facts. Number one. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. Jack Smith, so nervous. What was he so nervous about? The guy used to be at The Hague. He's used to indicting big names. Why was he so jittery? No surprise. The third indictment for Trump. This one on January 6th, two years after the ugly event and one year from an election. We detail it all. And that's where I'll start. Because tomorrow at 4 o'clock, Thursday at 4 o'clock, we are going to see President Trump go on trial. Uh, excuse me, have his, uh, again, officially indicted, not go on trial. And then we're going to find out what's going to happen with all three indictments and all his personal, uh, the personal civil judgments, the one in New York, the one in uh, with the uh, uh, the civil case with the accuser that said she was raped, but they don't remember. He just doesn't even remember the year. Uh, and then we're going to find out about the Georgia indictment, which is coming. We know that about the phone calls and things to that nature. I, I'm shocked by so many things. Number one, I thought this was an airtight a strong indictment that had new things from the January 6th committee, you know, with Liz Cheney heading up. Remember that? 
But this is really the same thing that could have been handed out six, eight months ago. For those people out there who say this has to be timed, this is not just coincidental, that every time something big comes up with Hunter, Archer, his good buddy, uh, Devin Archer, goes behind closed doors to testify about the business relationship with Hunter and his dad. Every time something like that comes up, you see something come up with Trump. There's no coincidence there. Remember, Hunter Biden's deal falls apart. It's huge news that even other networks have to cover until... There's more to the Mar-a-Lago indictments. And I talked to a former Trump attorney that is not the biggest fan of the Trump team anymore, but says this whole thing could have been handed out at one time. And it's his personal opinion. And I was away and he's offline and he's away too. his personal opinion. This is all time to squelch the Hunter Biden news. Joe Biden said I have nothing to do with the Department of Justice. Does anyone believe that just because he's on the beach and his attorney general? Appoints Jason um, Smith, but he says they had nothing to do with it. So there's a lot, a lot to go on, a lot to listen to. So this is what I was talking about. You can't see it, obviously. We're on the Fox Nation stream, but you can't see this. But you listen to Jack Smith make this announcement about this uh, four-count indictment. Cut one. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. Now, when you sit a grand jury down in Washington, D.C., where President Trump got all of 5% of the vote, the minute they sat down, they just yelled out guilty, and then they said, oh, by the way, what are the charges? I mean... I exaggerate, but you got to be kidding me. And then the the judge that's picked at random, they say it's on a wheel and they uh, they just do things randomly. But she's known as the punisher because of the severe punishments that often outstrip what the prosecution was asking for when it came to the January 6th indictment. So you're going to tell me that this guy's got to get a fair trial? Of course, he's got to get convicted and then it's going to be appealed. The question is, when is he going to get a trial? Because we know that Smith already has him going to trial in May. We know that... In New York, he's going to be going March 20th. And then we know it for the Georgia indictment and the civil judgments in the fall, all in and around the primaries and the caucuses of Iowa. And this one thing is clear. I don't care if you think he's innocent or guilty. You're pulling him off the campaign trail and focusing on court cases. It hurts his competition because they can't get a word in. Their new policy on Ukraine, their new policy on the economy, their new policy on trade and immigration doesn't matter. Donald Trump protested the 2020 election. Donald Trump gave a speech in in January 6th. The people that attended that speech went into the Capitol. How it's related to Trump is on trial. And that matters more than anything else. Here's the big secret. All of you know it doesn't matter. That's why only 23% of you think we're heading in the right direction. It's not because we're fatally flawed and we're embroiled in six wars. It's because all the fundamentals are there for politicians to address major issues But all we do is watch Republicans and Democrats sue each other and try each other and indict each other. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Jonathan Turley about it. And I'm going to spend some time on the Devin Devin Archer situation. Going to go over new revelations that came out today. And I'm going to give a balanced look at this. Not that CNN and MSNBC are doing. Back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade, Joe. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. 
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There are legitimate defenses Despite all the evidence that you laid out, a lot of people I talk to think that Donald Trump could persuasively claim that he legitimately believed the election was stolen and or that he was relying on the advice of lawyers. But the problem with that defense is that it seems that it would require him to testify at the trial. Who else can talk about Donald Trump's state of mind? And that obviously would be legally disastrous. So it's a real trap that Jack Smith has set for Donald Trump uh, in a breathtaking 45-page indictment. Breathtaking. Je- uh, that's the uh, Ken Delanian, uh, Justice and Intel correspondent. But interesting take. I wanted uh, Jonathan Turley to comment on, if he would, constitutional law professor at GW, uh, George Washington University, is where it pays his bills and gives him dental. Uh, but he's also a Fox News contributor. Uh, Jonathan, I just want you to con- welcome back. Great job yesterday, as usual. But I'm just wondering about, does Donald Trump have to take the stand to prove his own mindset? No, no, he doesn't. And of course, the burden is on the prosecution. And the question is, how do you actually prove this? You know, the what the the indictment says is lots of people told Trump that the election wasn't stolen and that the challenge to certification was invalid. Well, fine. I was one of those people saying that. Uh, but he had other people saying the opposite. He had attorneys not a small number, uh, saying, no, you you can make these challenges. The election was stolen. There is this evidence. Millions of Americans believe that. And so it's a weird indictment. You know, the the indictment says at the outset, as it must, that you are constitutionally protected in saying false things, including in an election. The Supreme Court has said that. It said in a case called Alvarez involving a politician who knew he was lying, and the court said this is still protected. But then the, it, it basically Smith does a 180 and says, but not here, because Trump was told it was a lie. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Alvarez knew it was a lie in that case. But also the Democrats challenged prior Republican uh, presidents, including Trump. They knew that there wasn't a basis to challenge the election. Did they also commit crimes? Were they also indicted? Of course they weren't. So uh, a couple of things. If Mark Meadows is the guy, the chief of staff that was with him the most, that talked about all these things, helped him put the speech together and the event together and things like that, if he said behind closed doors to save himself, yeah, Donald Trump came up to me. He didn't believe a word of it. He said it's all a ruse, and I was right there. Is that enough? Well, that's going to really force this issue of whether a knowing lie is protected. Obviously, Meadows could do a lot of damage if he he said – yeah, Trump acknowledged to me that this was all uh, a, a lie and it was all a false claim. But you still have this question, as in the Alvarez case. Alvarez knew he didn't win the Medal of Honor. He knew that he wasn't dating a Mexican film star. But the Supreme Court still said that those lies are protected because if they're not, you end up on the slippery slope where the federal government could just arrest people that they say are saying untrue things. Well, yeah. you know, it doesn't it doesn't solve Smith's constitutional problem. What what concerns me here is that the implications of this filing for free speech 
are quite chilling. And those people celebrating this indictment are dismissing that, and they shouldn't. And I said it last night, you know, when is the price too high? You know, you have an indictment in Florida, which I said was a strong one. That's a solid case. Trump could still beat it, but it's a legitimate case based on, on established evidence and established law. This is neither. Smith is, 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 you, is trying to create new law here, and he doesn't cite any new evidence. That should disturb people. I mean, there's got to be some point where you say, enough. You know, when you start to take a hatchet to the First Amendment in this, this quest to nail Trump, someone's got to say, look, he's not going to be the first president you don't like. You know, so, we've had this First Amendment so around Jonathan, a long time. This is what, it, you know, talk to so many attorneys today. My first one was from New York City and says the thing that's going to be tough for his team is the sitting of additional uh, alternate electors, because that shows uh, that shows a plan to deceive and delegitimize an election. What do you think? Well, you know, with in terms of the jury itself and voir dire, uh, you know, this is going to be one of those issues of, of how these facts are viewed. But I do think that the false electors uh, is a concrete issue that is, you know, did Trump know that these electors uh, had no legal basis? Well, if he has lawyers telling him, no, this is a legitimate effort, can you can you put him in, in prison for believing the wrong set of lawyers. That's essentially going to be his argument. I think the electors are the one area that I would focus on the most in terms of vulnerability, but you're still left with this threshold constitutional question. And that could end up going through the Court of Appeals. You know, if this trial judge is fair, I think that she would recognize that this raises serious threshold free speech questions. And she will allow that appeal to go forward before trial. Uh, and it could Can end you explain up to I'm a, I'm a non-lawyer, obviously. So if, if this, this case is about to go before her, she's known as the Punisher. She's very aggressive in January 6th cases in the past. She's in Washington, D.C. She looks at the case and says, ooh, I got a problem with this. So I'm going to what, – what would she do if she doesn't like the threshold that this is leading us to? Well, what she can do is say, look – you know, maybe she rules against the Trump team and says, you know what, this is a fact question. They say they can prove that you knew that you lied and that you committed a fraud. And I think that can go to trial. But she can also say, I recognize that the question still remains, you know, saying something false as a politician, even if you knowingly do it, is it protected? Given the Alvarez case, I'm going to allow you a chance to go to the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court on that question. So I'm going to rule against you, and you can then take it up. I think that would be a fair thing. The fact is there is a thing called fraud. You know, you, fraud, you, you just can't – you don't have a right to lie if it's fraud. And we can all accept that. But this is in the middle of an election where people disagree. And the question is – how much breathing room do you give free speech, particularly in election? Because the alternative is what they're doing here. What, J- what Smith is saying is you can say false things unless the government believes that you should have listened to us, that we believe that we told you the truth and you didn't accept it. That's what it comes down to. And that's dangerous. 
Well, can you explain to me what this whole thing, conspiracy against rights, is Is that the thing that dates back to 1870? Yeah, it does. It's part of the civil rights claim. It has been used in a couple of cases involving uh, messing around with electoral votes and the election process. It hasn't been used a lot, so there's not a ton of precedent there. Uh, so that's going to be an issue. But I think that the, the more serious question is, even if you prove that Donald Trump knew that he had lost the election, even if you prove that he knew that the electors being sent to Washington were the real electors, uh, is this still protected speech? And that's a question that I think is going to have to go to the Supreme Court. I expect the Supreme Court would expedite it, as would the Court of Appeals, if this is an election series uh, season. And I think that they probably would expedite it. So I'm looking at some of the numbers and money spent for Trump. Now, they say, oh, he's famous for not paying his lawyers. His lawyers are getting paid because his joint foreign raising committee reported earning uh, uh, raising $53 million. But his last two affiliates, they spent $57 million over the same period on, on, uh, uh, on, on different legal issues. So all this money that's coming in is being spent on his legal cases. Now, what does that say about the average American, or let's say above upper middle class person? If they want to get you, they're going to wear you out and bankrupt you, almost force you to take a deal by anybody else who wasn't running for president or wasn't a multimillionaire. Jonathan, does it concern you that the system, someone's innocence might be predicated on how much money they have? It does. I mean, if you look at Bob McDonald, which was the case that Smith brought, uh, that looks a lot like this case, quite frankly. When I read this indictment, I thought of the indictment of the Virginia governor. Well, Smith got a conviction there, and he was overturned by unanimous Supreme Court because he stretched the law too far. But in the process, he ruined this man's career and bankrupted him. Uh, and th- that's part of the pressure they use when they try to get people like Mark Meadows and others to cooperate. They say, look, uh, we can charge you with a false statement uh, or obstruction or conspiracy. Those are, are the darlings of prosecutors. We just have to nail you on one, and you can end up dying in prison, and you can end up spending all the money you have to fight us, or you could do what we ask you to do. It's crazy. Uh, and actually, I think for the first time, people giving money towards his legal defense is part of, his def- uh, part of supporting him, where I think six months ago I didn't feel that way. I felt like people might have been deceived. But I think people know the money's got to go to defend this. And uh, as his opponents would say, well, he could just sell sell a building, but we'll see. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We'll see where this develops. I think we have another indictment to talk about in a couple of weeks. Right. You got thanks. it. Thanks. Good to see you. Hey, what does it mean for the whole political field? What does it mean for Joe Biden? And what about the Hunter Biden situation? Rich Lowry, National Review, next. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. It also goes to show why this choice of jurisdiction and venue matters deeply. And I think Jack Smith knows exactly what he's doing. Laura, it just strikes me as the truth of the matter here. They are not going to stop until they get him going or get him coming. And I say this as somebody who is running against Trump. I'm polling at third in the Republican primary now. It would be easier for me if Donald Trump were eliminated from competition. That is not how any of us should want to win, because that is bad for this country. 
That is why I think it's important for those of us competing against Trump to take a strong stand against these politicized indictments. Also, it's good for the for your polling. Uh, they just did a Siena, a New York Times Siena poll, and it showed they asked the Republicans, should, if you're a Republican, should you support Donald Trump through these court cases? And 70 plus percent said yes. And I think Vivek uh, Ramaswamy is one of the most impressive new candidates that I've seen come out of nowhere to be a real player, even though he's trailing by Trump by a lot. Everybody wants to book him. He's a good guest on every issue, and he goes anywhere he's asked. Rich Lowry also goes anywhere he's asked, editor of National Review, author of The Case for Nationalism. Rich, welcome back. What do you think about Vivek's assessment? He's like, it would be better if he left, but I think you got to stand by him now. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, so I, I, love, I love Vivek. I, I don't think he's quite saying he's running against Donald Trump isn't quite true. <laughs> he is running in the, in the uh, primary, but he's not exactly running against Because he's so positive, Trump. you mean? Yeah, he's 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 hasn't said a negative word pretty much against Trump. I guess he's he's said a, a slight thing here here or there about Trump probably not showing up for the for the first debate. But is he capturing the way Republicans feel? Absolutely. And and this indictment is a a disgrace. It's uh, it's a political document. It stretches the law to try to make uh, uh, political offenses into federal crimes. And it's just a bedrock of our system that Congress is supposed to at least write criminal statutes that are, are clear so you, you know you're committing a crime when you're committing a crime. <laughs> That's the way it's supposed to work. And there's no way Trump could have known that, uh, that this was illegal or supposed to be illegal. And the Supreme Court's been very clear in a number of cases now. Fraud means, you know, you're, you're, you're committing fraud against me, Brian. It doesn't mean you're, you're deceiving me or saying things that are untrue. It means you're, you're stealing my money or my property. So that this thing, you know, Smith may succeed in the trial court, appeals court, eventually, I would think, fails in the Supreme Court. But of course, you know, that's, that's going to take time and you might have a quote unquote convicted felon, uh, Donald Trump, for, for a long time in the interim. So I'm going to ask you to speculate to a degree, but I do know you have a lot of contacts on the other side, Democrats, Republicans. You guys talk all the time at the highest levels. I always think there's a master plan behind things. And looking at a master plan, when they were saying, OK, we don't have the strongest candidate in Joe Biden, the economy's he's probably going to be in the 40 to the high 30 percent by the time he goes to run again, if it is, in fact, him. So how do we go ahead and divide the Republican field after 2022? Well, let's uh, kill Trump. Do you think they went out to kill Trump or do you think they've gone out intentionally to indict him, make him look like a victim and allow mm-hmm. Republicans to consolidate behind him? Which one do you think they tried to do? Well, you know, I think the reasons they're doing this kind of overdetermined. One, one, they really think he should be in jail. They want him to be in jail. They enjoy the spectacle of the humiliation of him having to show up to to these arraignments. And then th- there's the benefit. Uh, also, that's boosting him in the primary and probably hurting him in the the general election. And whenever I raise this with Democrats, they're like, "Oh, we're not we're not that good." But it, just just think of this, this way. I think about it. Do a thought experiment. If Merrick Garland knew that indicting Trump on, on this or any of the other stuff would help him in a general election and make it more likely he would beat Joe Biden, would you just go ahead and and let it happen? 
No, I don't think he would. So even if they didn't realize this would be the Republican reaction initially, by the time after – shortly after the Mar-a-Lago raid, you knew it. Shortly after the Bragg indictment, you knew it. So I think this is this is um, uh, at least a side or indirect benefit to them. And you know the indictment helps them in the primary, and then they want to get the trials, right, right away and before the election because they assume a, a conviction would hurt them. In a general. So it, it works on every level for them. But the polls don't necessarily indicate that. You saw, uh, you see all these, these smaller polls, Trump's winning. And then I see the New York Times poll in a mm-hmm. dead heat, in which statistically he's actually the same time he was doing a worse against Biden head to head by the time, you know, in the backstretch of uh, yeah. 2020. So I, I don't know if it's hurting him as much in the general. Do you think some non Trumpers or independents are going, okay? Biden's terrible. I, I'm gonna. I'm going back. Um, I, I think it, it's hard to see Trump winning more votes than he did in, in 2020, or winning winning over persuadables that he didn't get in in, in 2020. But it's easily to, to see people not showing up for Biden again, and I think that's that's a huge risk. And yeah, I, I, look, if, if the New York Times had it tied, Monmouth had it tied. These are these are serious. Uh, pollsters, but but they're banking on the fact that I don't think it's unreasonable that you get them in a trial. You remind, you know, whenever this 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 January sixth trial would be, if it happens before the election, you're focusing on something that a lot of people don't like about Trump, and it's it's a huge national story. Every day you're talking about it, and then maybe you come out of it with him as a again a quote unquote convicted felon, which can't help. And in the internals in that New York Times poll, most people, you know, majority of people think he's committed crimes, and majority of people think he was a threat uh, to the uh, to democracy after January 6. And of course, you know, 80% of Democrats think that, but also majorities of independents think that. Now, maybe push comes to shove, they they have to choose between the guy that they think they're going to be is going to be better on the economy and a guy they think they've committed crimes, and they're going to choose him because they think he's going to be better on the economy. I think that's entirely possible, but. But, it, but it's at the very least, it's a drag on Trump. So something to think about that might end up in a Rich Larry uh, column, and I wouldn't be surprised you give me credit for it, is <laughs> you take a terrible situation like 9-11, Pearl Harbor, January 6th. I think it's terrible. I'm, I'm never going to be someone to say no big deal. It was, it was a demonstration. I, I, I ne- don't think I think that for a second. I'm not an idiot. Uh, and I'm not going to try to pretend it wasn't a big deal. But if I said 9-11 every day, 9-11, the firefighters were heroes, those victims that died, I want to go. If I said it every day, for example, I think the Afghanistan thing is so underreported. I'm outraged every day I think about it. But if I talked about it every day on this show and Fox and Friends, I almost after a while I'm, I'm building mm-hmm. up a callus. Yeah, and after these people at home are driving. They, they drive, okay. I hated Afghanistan, too. I hated January 6th, too. Pearl Harbor was awful. January, you know, 9-11 was all enough, even as bad as it is. I don't want to forget, but I yep. also can't dwell. Are they yep. somehow building up a callus to January 6th on people that weren't, aren't Liz Cheney or Adam Schiff? Yeah, you know this is this is interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought of it this way before, Brian. So, so maybe there is a calm coming out of this. But the the downside to Trump, and we've talked about this before. You've said it. Is, don't be backward looking. Don't focus on the the last election. You need to focus on the the next election and what your vision for the future is. The Democrats could be doing exactly the same thing. 
focusing on the past, you know, what's the future? And at the end of the day, I think voters will make the decision uh, based on who they think is going to be better in the in the future, not uh, who who was the um, a malefactor mm-hmm. in the past. And the economy, you know, will, will unless there's some horrible national security crisis, which we hope there isn't, uh, the economy will be the determining issue. And by the way, the, the, the Fitch report just downgraded U.S. credit. Uh, that's just as significant. In a time in which the president wants us to understand how great Bidenomics is, the Fitch a review just said that we are, we are less desirable as an investment mm-hmm. country than before. Now, that's not an, a great buzz term, but in terms of in economic circles, this is a disaster. Yeah, it's it's bad, and the the theory that uh, arose after o- Obama blew, blew out the you know the, the deficit and the debt among uh, on the left was it doesn't matter anymore, and, and you should have spent more. That you can you can just spend endless amount of money, uh, the so-called mon- mon- modern monetary policy, and it doesn't matter. And you know it hasn't mattered to this point, but eventually it is going to matter. And we're we're spending a lot of money on the interest on the debt that that could either be saved, you know, and and be productively in the private economy, or uh, spent on other things. And th- this is a problem that that looks like it's only going to get worse. Yeah, the Fitch ratings downgrade. U.S. long term rating went from uh, one to double A plus from triple A. And it reflects fiscal deterioration over the next three years and growing debt between the two, between what happened with the collapse of the economy in 08, where we had the flood with quantitative easing money that we didn't have. We had basically printed it. And then we did it again with the pandemic. We flooded it uh, with money we didn't have, but we felt like we had no choice. Now we seem to be paying the price in layman's terms. I want to talk a little bit about what's happening with the Hunter Biden situation, because I think it's uh, horrific that it's been so underreported. But the latest revelations come forward. Hunter told his longtime business partner, Devin Archer, in 2011, that a Chinese mogul who secured the duo multi-million dollar deal loved him for his last name. Mm-hmm. And he said the, the troop of very handsome, Aryan, godlike men he brought with him everywhere. <laughs> Emails from his sons have been, been allowed to. He said, quote, your question of why does the super chair, meaning super chairman, love me so much is easily answered. This is to Devin Archer. It has nothing to do with me and everything to do with my last name. Really? So here we are in September of 2011. He's doing deals. His dad's calling in 20 separate times just to say hello. Yeah, and that is not considered yet. Yeah, that is not considered a smoking gun big deal. What would Anderson Cooper be doing with this storyline? What would oh, Chuck Todd be saying about this if oh, it was a, if it was Don Jr.? Absolutely. And even if we accept that it was, you know, quote unquote, the illusion of access, which is apparently what Devin Archer said, that's that's a corrupt scheme. Yes. And and the, the vice president of the United States was advancing it by being available. You know, what creates the illusion of access? Well, getting a high level U.S. official on the phone creates the illusion of access. And the, uh, you know, the, there was an inadvertently hilarious passage in the, the plea deal that rightly blew up, you know, where they, they were saying, you know, he was too drug addled. Uh, he wouldn't, couldn't possibly pay his, his period of, of time when he was going through this, this serious addiction. But he still managed to be a successful international businessman. Well, these two things don't add up, right? <laughs> and the reason why, and, and Hunter was aware of it. Joe must have been aware of it. Was was the last name and, and the illusion or the reality of access? And the other thing is, you know, when they release the transcript, Devin Archer does not throw uh, Hunter and Joe under the bus, right? Guess why? 
They're still friends, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is he's going to prison for a year and a day. It'll probably be half that. If he goes and says, you know, Hunter Biden, you know, if he does a Bobolinsky and tells the truth mm-hmm. and says all the inv- deals that they were involved in, and everybody understood the big guy was uh, 10% to the big guy. If, every, if he goes and says that, we've already seen the retribution that's taken place. We heard about the arrest uh, warrant that came out on Saturday that Devin Archer needs a date to report to prison. If that doesn't send a message, I don't know what does. Yeah, so you, you want you, you want to be liked by the right people, even when you're getting out of out of jail. And the the media is not going to cover it unless they think one that Biden is so wounded that he needs to go away, uh, and and someone else needs to be the nominee to uh, to to beat Trump, or it has to be like a wire transfer, you know, or a a, a check receipt or something incredibly concrete. And undeniable. Otherwise, you know, they'll give it marginal coverage, but it'll never create the kind of the media firestorm we would see right. if these were the same circumstances. I mean, we had a media firestorm over Russia that was built on gossamer and lies, you know, and then you have this barely creating a ripple. And the other thing is what I find so interesting, and I see people reviewing these indictments and what could be coming and what's happening. And they say, well, the thing that Robert Mueller did wrong, they've learned from that. I go, wait a second. Who are you missing? It's, he didn't prosecute wrongly. There was nothing there. There was no conspiracy yep. there. So they're actually acting like Mueller made a mistake. Mueller didn't make a mistake. They spent millions upon millions of dollars, took two and a half years, used everything possible, active FBI agents, to go ahead and pursue this. And they just ruined lives and found out they didn't collude with Russia. That doesn't mean Mueller made a mistake. It means that there's there's no there there. What, uh, these politicians are so caught up in in the nuances of the investigation, they don't realize there's an end to some of them, and they yeah. don't necessarily reveal that Donald Trump is guilty. Yeah, when when the evidence isn't there or or the law doesn't support it, you're supposed to stand down, and and that's what what Jack Smith has refused to do. And it's just it's uh, just a, another symptom of our time that it, you know it's it's impossible to say if you say the way I do. You know, January sixth was terrible. Trump never never should have. Uh, um, question the election the way the way he did, but 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 it's not illegal. They're like, oh, you're a Trump hack, you know, you're in the tank. Um, so it's 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 bad. All right, uh, we'll see where we go. Last question: Do you think that the Republicans should pursue an impeachment? I I don't uh, just because I think and I, I said this uh, during the two Trump impeachments. It's really if if you don't have a uh, some chance of something shaking loose in the in the Senate, you, you shouldn't do it. You know, you can make a point with it. Maybe you know, score, score. Maybe the politics will work out for you. Um, otherwise, you shouldn't do it. And but, but I'll, I'll caveat. You know, depending on the evidence. So I wouldn't do it based on what they they have now, which is you know a lot of stuff by implication and uh, circumstantial. But you know, if if the the check stub shows up that I was talking about or the wire transfer, and you know there's frank bribery, well that's that's an impeachable offense. But I wouldn't impeach him now. I think uh, they will though. Uh, yeah, I know. Just a, would some somebody's got to do what's good for the country for a change. And we have so many issues that need to be addressed, and it's so tedious impeachment. And like you said, the the end is already uh, baked in. Uh, Rich, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Talk soon. All right. Uh, Back in a moment. I'll take your calls. First time, 1-866-408-7669. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. And it's just a good example of, could everybody just stop the posturing? Don't pretend that you love migrants so much, and then when we send them to you, you don't like them. You know? Mm-hmm. You're full of <laughs> and we can see that. Yeah, you like them when it wasn't your problem because you're not a border state. <laughs> and then when they show up in Chicago and New York, you're like, what the What's are we going to do with these people? Yeah. You know? And there's got to be a solution to this that is compassionate. So the, Bill Maher from his podcast, he's got a drink in one hand and I think a marijuana cigarette in the other. And he makes a lot of sense. I just saw him with Jordan Peterson online and... And he says people on the left keep telling him he's changed because I haven't changed. You guys have changed. And just understand that when you when you have a sanctuary city, there's going to be a ramification to it. And now there's some movement, quiet, but it's a movement to stay in the sanctuary city status of New York. Why? Over 90,000 have come in and 60 between 58 and 62,000 are still here. We have nowhere to put them. Here is Mayor Adams. Cut 42. Eventually, this was going to come to a neighborhood near you. Having someone embedded is a good start. That that came from the Secretary of Homeland Security. We want to thank him. But I've been very clear on what we need. We need to control the border. We need to call a state of emergency, and we need to properly fund this national crisis. Yes, and it's all your fault. Not that people want to come here, but that you're allowing them to come in. And because Title VIII's in place, the numbers seem to be some somewhat down. Keep in mind, they're flying them in from other countries. They fill out their forms on an app, and then we fly them into small airports without telling you. And they don't tell the mayors, let alone the governors, even if they're from the same party. It's nuts. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Back in action here from 48 to 6 in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. The great Brad Thor is standing by. Uh, one of the most successful authors in our country who's so connected in intelligence and terror uh, and the U.S. Defense Department as well as political uh, operatives. He's got a, his best-selling series uh, continues now. Uh, author of 22 thrillers. Newest book is the Scott Harvath uh, series, uh, De- uh, Dead Fail, uh, Deadfall, and it's now out. So Brad's going to be with us in a matter of a moment. And Mikhail Zeiger will be with us, a Russian journalist and author of a new book called War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russian Invasion of Ukraine. We know what an epic disaster it's been for the Russians, how they don't care about their people, which means they're going to fight on, even though Ukraine has begun to hit inside Moscow. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I'm going to tell you, I don't think Joe Biden is the nominee in 24. I think it's a health thing. I think it's the Hunter Biden thing. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but I just think that's the way it's playing out. I don't think Trump or Biden are on that ticket. Uh, Governor Sununu, I know you've been saying that. I know how bright you are, but I think you're wrong. What does it all mean for 2024? I'm talking about the court cases, and I'm talking about the Hunter Biden scandals. Could the mood of the nation be so down now at 23 percent that the said cases and the age of both candidates, well, do they play a bigger role in the final results? 
Number two. Well, every day this bribery scandal becomes more credible. Not only was Joe Biden on the phone over 20 times with people, including the Burisma executives, uh, talking about uh, whatever, even though the president denied that he never spoke to any of these people. Compared to Trump thrice indictments to the Biden's family's mystery millions, Hunter's selling in the Biden brand. Yup, Joe's phone calls into the son's business dealings and possible role in American foreign policy. We cut through the cheerleading, give the facts. Number one. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. Yeah, I guess so. What else is new? Jack Smith, no surprise, a third indictment for Trump. This one on January 6th, two years after the ugly event and one year from the election. We detail it all. And people who are clear thinking, not partisan uh, legal experts, are basically saying, what the hell are you doing? Number one, the indictment's not done. If you're going to make January 6th some of the damage done, you're going to expand it. Why are you doing this gradual indictment? I mean, how else do you figure that Mar-a-Lago had a second wave of indictments a couple of weeks ago. Anything to do with the Hunter Biden scandal that's unfolded, the uh, deal, the bargain, plea bargain that fell apart? Of course it does. The coincidences are too great and they don't seem to care, which I find that really disturbing. Mike Pence did pounce on this, though. I don't think he has a choice. His, His campaign is sucking wind. He's trying to separate himself from Trump but really can't. There's no lane there for somebody who wants to be anti-Trump. Um, but here's what he said. Uh, he said this, and I'll, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he says, essentially, where did I just have it? Uh, Mike Pence came down as his vice president. I'll have it in a second. Uh, but he, here's the indictment. He was indicted on four federal charges, including conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, an obstruction and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, a conspiracy against rights. Conspiracy against rights, not many people think that people are stopping the outcome of an election. You're going to give Donald Trump credit on that. Number two, the thing that I understand, according to some experts, is the biggest problem he has is his role, if any, in trying to seat alternate electors. They say that circumvents the process. What I think is also happening, everyone's getting numb to it. The people that think January 6th is the worst thing in the world don't want to hear about it every day. And the thing, people that want to uh, lowball it and say it was no big deal, they're not going to be convinced. The people in between are beginning to be part, what many people think, are the uh, are they now I'm going not be as anti-Trump an independent undecided that might be more open to it when you hit him in three indictments first the farce which is Alvin Bragg over something that happened 15 years ago that doesn't amount to anything you don't indict a president and then the second one the Mar-a-Lago documents is a strong case against it I talked to people around it if he has good attorneys this thing's going to drag out and there's a, a lot of things that they're saying don't play out if he's got good attorneys and he is paying them because we know a lot of the campaign dollars are going there. And that's not a scandal. He's basically making it clear. That's where they're going. Donald Trump came out and put this out on True Social. Why didn't they bring these ridiculous cases two and a half years ago? They wanted it to be in the middle of the campaign, and that's why. Well, think about this. Now we're talking about the debates, August 23rd. This is another indictment. The Georgia indictment will come out right before that. Just expect it. And then come the fall, there'll be a couple of civil cases that are due. In March 20th, right around the New Hampshire primary, there's going to be the case, unless it's moved, on the uh, on the Alvin Bragg New York case. 
And then there's going to be in May, but I think it's going to be moved on Mar-a-Lago. Guess what's happening? Big time primaries. And what's happening? At the very least, I don't care if you're the front runner. You want to be out there talking about your message. What are you going to do with the border? What are you going to do with the economy? What are you going to do in foreign policy? But if every day the Republican leader, if he is still the leader, and I expect him to be, is in the courtroom, even Joe Biden will look energetic. And they'll be able to take this elderly man that doesn't know what way to leave the stage or go to find the stage. He'll not have to do much because he's in a dead heat with a guy that's on trial. So why again with the January 6th report? Why was Jack Smith so nervous? This guy's used to testifying at The Hague. Suddenly he's nervous at a press conference in something that he called. No way do I believe that the timing is just coincidentally. Hunter Biden deal blows up. Archer speaks. We got two major Trump stories. Why was Jack Smith so nervous? And why was he paying homage to law enforcement after as if this news just broke about law enforcement being targeted? Of course we're against law enforcement being hit. Of course we're upset about how law enforcement was treated. You're bringing that up, that they're the real hero? We don't care if you think they're the real heroes. You're there to to die to president. What are you so nervous about? The D.C. jury should certainly convict an Obama judge known as the Punisher, uh, who's incensed about January 6th, is the one who randomly, maybe it is, got selected. It'll be appealed. It'll end up in the Supreme Court. I am sure the Supreme Court won't take this case unless there's something else in it, or they'll take it and overturn it if there is a if it gets up there. Also, Trump is starting to run out of campaign cash. Can you imagine if any of us were being targeted, even if we're valid or not, we would have been forced to take a deal because you ran out of money. But basically, he raised $57 million. There's like $60 million has been spent. Divert, uh, it's diverted and helped him win this campaign because 70% of the Republicans think that he should be defended. You got 11 other candidates looking for some attention. But every time you go after Trump, even if it's negative news, all the candidates talk about is Donald Trump. Where do they stand? How do they feel? They feel he's being targeted. Next thing you know, the guy that you're trying to catch, you're trying to catch, you end up praising. Here's what Alan Dershowitz said about this indictment overall. Cut 12. They claim that Donald, this is the key point, that Donald Trump actually believed that he lost the election, that everything he did was fraudulent, that he conspired with unnamed lawyers, mostly, to affect the election. Now, you're allowed to challenge elections. Indeed, the best way to challenge elections is to come up with a slate of alternate electives. That's what a court said in Hawaii in 1960. That's been the case throughout our history. So the government has the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that subjectively Donald Trump actually believed that he lost the election and acted contrary to that belief. It's weird. Yeah. I thought they were. I thought they actually uncovered something that you know there was a meeting and the Proud Boys said this is what you do and and they said the President of the United States said you you stand here and the well, I don't know what all these names are but uh, uh, I don't know uh, all these crazy groups got together and they did and Donald Trump orchestrated the whole thing no none of that this looks like something from the January sixth report I, I don't get it either it's Tom Cotton cut fourteen. 
These are all constitutionally protected activities in which former President Trump engaged, uh, political activities and free speech protected by the First Amendment. Um, you don't have to agree with him. You don't have to think he was right. But I, I don't see how these charges can go forward without a serious constitutional challenge from the former president. And we'll see what happens. But all they say is fighting. And um, overall, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help Republicans. It doesn't help Democrats. It doesn't help the country. That's why people think we're in the wrong track. Because we're doing it. It's a big sideshow. It's like going to watch a parade, and you see next thing you know, the bands are fighting each other. You think, I'm here to watch a parade. I don't care what band wins as they hit each other with their bassoons and trumpets. I need to see, I want to see a parade. So we can't even get to anybody with any issues or any beliefs or find out the points of view or the direction they want to lead the country. Because we're in the middle of this crap. one 866 Listen, so great to be back. Uh, Ten days in Italy was a lot of fun, but I'm back in action, and the action has not slowed down. Brad Thor is next. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Brad Thor here. If you're smart enough to watch Fox Nation, uh, you see that he's dressed for the occasion. He's the number one New York Times bestselling author of 22 thrillers. The newest book is Scott Horvath. Horvath, a series is is Dead Fall. Uh, And, Brad, you got a brand new edition out. I do. Just came out last week. Brand new thriller. Uh, Tell me about it. So I grew up loving books by Alistair McLean. One of my favorite movies, Clint Eastwood movie, is called Where Eagles Dare. With Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton, they take over this Nazi fortress. But my stuff is contemporary. So I always wanted to write kind of a World War II-style thriller. So when the war in Ukraine broke out, I said, okay, I'm going to make that the backdrop. I'm going to have an American who goes – a woman who goes missing behind enemy lines. And because we can't commit troops – the U.S. government is going to send one guy and claim they don't know that he's over there. And he needs to find her, get her out, and kill everybody responsible for taking her hostage. How did you research it? I uh, talked to a lot of the people that I know that are over there training Ukrainian troops, people involved with the uh, Ukrainian International Legion. And listen, this is the first war to be streamed live with GoPro cameras. I mean, the amount of footage you can watch on YouTube is incredible. So it was a blessing for me as an author. And what have you learned? Uh, I've learned that uh, this the, is a brutal World War One style event. It's brutal, and the Russians, their military doctrine is to really defend their position. So that means a ton of landmines. Uh, these these defenses they do are sometimes twenty kilometers thick, and that's why the counteroffensive is moving so slowly. Is it takes a long time to get in and actually be able to get in gunfights with the Russians because you got to get through the minefields. They've got air superiority. Also learned that the HIMARS, these rocket systems that we thought were a big game changer last summer, the Russians have figured out how to hack them and knock them out of the air with their electronic uh, systems. So with their electronic warfare, all the jamming and things like that. So uh, the Ukrainians, we've trained, uh, actually, I think it was General Milley that said with our allies, we've trained 17 brigade combat teams, uh, about 63,000 Ukrainian troops. They're now getting fed into the battle. Those tactics, being able to combine infantry and armor is going to turn the tide there. But they're now just starting to be put on the playing field. That's why this thing has been going so slowly. Uh, Also, when you talk about uh, what they need, they need F-16s. They definitely need F-16s. What is the the legitimate concern about giving them these? 
Well, we've gotten past the concern. The concern was at one point the polls offered to give jets and we were worried about how are we going to get the jets in there without it being an escalation. Now we're not as worried about giving them the planes and that being an escalation. The big thing they're saying now is is transitioning their MiG fighter pilots to F-16 fighters. Uh, So that takes some time and everything. But, you know, listen, morally, you should want this war over. I don't want to see any more Ukrainians killed. I don't want to see any more Russians killed. And I want to see the Russians pushed out all the way out of Ukraine. Uh, You and I were talking off air about how similar Putin going into Ukraine in 2014 was to Hitler taking the Sudetenland, Czechoslovakia, in the run up to World War II. Look, if he doesn't have success in Syria, reversing the tide in that civil war, if he doesn't have success just taking Crimea and having a big celebration there, if he doesn't have that success, he doesn't try to do this. This invasion, he thought it would be a walk. Yes. We thought it would be a walk. We did. We but did. yet we didn't do anything to stop what would have been a walk, like giving a missile defense system to put them on there. We thought that would be provocative. Well, you know what? I think the most important thing for listeners and viewers to know is that when the Soviet Union broke apart in the 1990s, a third of their nukes were in Ukraine. And we went to the Ukrainians and said, give them up. You guys can't maintain them and you can't protect them because we didn't want a nuke to be stolen and lit off in St. Louis or Santa Barbara or Miami, New York. So it was in our best interest to convince the Ukrainians to give them up. And they said, "Okay, we'll give them up. But you promise us, America, that we will never lose a square inch inch of our sovereign territory. And we said yes. And they said, now get the Russians to sign it. The Russians signed it. This is pre-Putin. And then 2014, Putin invaded. The Obama administration sent them a harshly worded letter. We kicked them out of the G8. This is why we have a G7 now, because we kicked the Russians out. And that was it, a handful of sanctions. So the Obama blankets. Yeah. And so we sent blankets. We didn't send them uh, uh, offensive weapons. So this thing happened because the Obama administration did not do enough in 2014. And can you believe that we're talking about a situation where most Republicans are starting to lose a taste for this and understanding uh, the the need how this figures into the bigger it's, uh, the bigger foreign policy yeah so it's interesting I just saw recent polling on this actually it was Fox News polling that said seniors people sixty and above not I'm getting close but I'm not a senior yet and I'm not going to go to sixty and have people call me a senior but Americans sixty and above are behind this the middle aged Americans yeah they kind of can go either way. 18 to 29-year-olds are completely against, uh, in the Republican Party, supporting Ukraine because they did not grow up with the Cold War. They don't understand that this is good for Russia's military to be hollowed out. We we do a lot of defense spending. We make a lot of decisions based on thinking we're going to have to go to war with Russia. Now we know they're a paper tiger, and we've also seen how well our weapons do in war. We've never tested them, a lot of them like this. So they it's don't been, understand peace is not an option right now. Not you can't somebody. give up 22% of your country because another country wants it and say, okay, let's have peace. Yeah. No, you can't. And listen, this argument that, that Ukraine is corrupt, yeah, they're corrupt. You know who's more corrupt? Russia's more corrupt. And I'm from Chicago. Chicago is thoroughly corrupt. But I don't want the Canadians coming down and trying to seize Chicago. It's sovereign territory. You don't get it. So, yeah, I, this needs to be – Putin needs to get his ass kicked and pushed all the way out of Ukraine. He doesn't get to keep an inch of what he's taken. That's the only good way to end this. Where's the Wagner group now? Well, a lot of them are in Belarus helping to train Belarusian soldiers. We've only seen Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner group. There was just an audio message on Telegram from him. There's been one photo and this weird, almost like hallmark video of him against the setting sun. We've not seen this guy sit down and actually speak on camera. He could be room temperature for all we know right now. So, yeah, I mean, he could be uh, 
He's in Belarus, uh, they think. Well, the, the or, president of Belarus said he left and he went to Russia. And, you know, anybody that crosses Putin, don't get near a rooftop or an open window. I can't believe. For some reason, he's still alive. I mean, and they that's what they say. I've not seen enough evidence to convince me. But, you know, Machiavelli said, don't ever base your power on mercenaries. And that's what Putin has done. It's like the Sopranos over there. And these are the these are the roughest collectors he's got are the Wagner Group guys. Brad, how do we get dead fall? So uh, any place fine books are sold and or come to bradthor.com And I've got information about the book and uh, all the links to all my social media. Thank you. Always get his past books uh, at Brad Thor. Uh, Brad, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Always my pleasure, All my right, friend. Uh, stay healthy. Hey, when we come back, uh, Mikhail Zygo will be joining us, uh, a Russian journalist and author of a brand-new book, War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russian Invasion of Ukraine. Uh, don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. This morning, a Russian drone strike on a port in southern Ukraine damaged vital facilities used to export grain. And Ukraine says more than 10 Russian drones targeted Kyiv. Now, this comes the day after drones struck a skyscraper in Moscow for the second time in 48 hours. So now the hits are coming inside Russia, and Ukraine isn't denying or confirming but these are drone strikes. It's supposed to rattle the people and let them know what's really going on in the war. Will it be successful? Joining me now in studio, Mikhail Zeiger, the Russian journalist and author of a new book, War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Mikhail, welcome. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the book. Why did you leave Russia? Oh, I couldn't stay after the beginning war. starts, you're out. Yeah, yeah. I, I left on the third day and... You know, first it was some kind of moral obligation to fight, to start fighting against it. I couldn't uh, fight against the war uh, while staying in Russia as a writer, as a journalist, because, you know, military censorship was introduced in Russia on the third day of the war. So I, most of journalists had to leave. What would happen to you if you stood there and wrote the real situation? If I, if I just called this war a war, uh, I would face um, five or, from five to seven years in jail. What do they call it? special military operation. And here's the reason why they're fighting. Listen to Vladimir Putin. We are fighting with Nazis. The nationalist detachments, which include foreign fighters, including from the Middle East, use peaceful citizens as a human shield. So we're fighting Nazis, you mean human citizens as a human shield. Well, when you bomb schools, you might have human uh, beings in them. Yeah, you, you know, that's the rhetorics he was using right in, uh, in the beginning. Actually, by now, uh, propaganda has become much more cynical. They, they, are non, they are not even denying that this war is brutal aggression. They just um, explain that uh, there should not, uh, shouldn't be any monopoly for violence. They, they usually say that, okay, if, if the United States could invade Iraq... We should have the right to invade Ukraine. That's, that's the, the way how Putin thinks. So why do you think that if he knew how this would come out, he still would have done it? No, he didn't know, obviously. He, he thought would. he'd have a quick win. Yes, absolutely. He was sure that in three days uh, uh, Kiev would surrender and uh, uh, Ukrainians would greet Russian soldiers with flowers. But he was obviously misled by, uh, by his uh, people. By but Zelensky was weak. Yeah, he was quite sure that Zelensky was weak. He was absolutely sure that all the Europe, all the global leaders are weaker than than he was because he thinks that he is the only capable uh, global leader. 
So he has Nord Stream 2 done. Joe Biden signs off on it. He has Nord Stream 1. It would have been permanently giving them uh, permanently giving them control of the, the energy system so all Europe. Trump couldn't get through to him. Um, oh, if you're looking for the sound, right there on the on the corner. Yeah. So so this is done. Didn't he know that he was jeopardizing Western trade in doing this, that this would be ultimately there would be some type of response? And now there's no Nord Stream 1 and no Nord Stream 2. That's not a big deal to him? Yeah, it's not a big deal because uh, in the beginning he was sh- he was sure that the West cannot do without Russian oil, oil and gas, and and he seems to be to be right because uh, uh, even uh, until now Russia manages to export its uh, natural resources uh, now via third parties uh, and European are Europeans are still buying Russian oil and gas uh, not directly uh, via Turkey like, what, what or countries? Kazakhstan. European Union, it's it's not it's not uh, it doesn't go directly from Russia, but actually uh, out of all uh, five gas pipelines that existed and were working before the war, uh, the main pipeline uh, that goes through Ukraine is still functioning, and actually Poland is um, is buying that uh, that natural gas. I had no idea about that. Well, what pipeline would that be? Uh, that's. Um, the pipeline that, that goes oh, from, whatever the name is. Uh, from Russia to Ukraine and then to Poland. That's incredible. Uh, so right now with this counterinsurgency happening, uh, what do you, what's the feeling in Russia as drones begin to hit major cities? You know, that's interesting because for many months, uh, most Moscovites were trying to uh, to pretend that nothing was happening, that that's the way how, how people try to, um, to escape that uh, reality. They... Just they try to pretend that business is usually still possible. Nothing is happening. War is very far, and they a lot of people are feeling helpless. I, I don't I don't believe that majority of Russians support this war. They just uh, think that they can do anything about that, and they don't see that war. But now they see it. Now they see it. Yeah. What about the Crimea Bridge hit twice? Yeah, Crimea Bridge is uh, is very far. I'm really surprised that a lot of Russians are still uh, going for their summer vacations in Crimea now uh, through occupied territories of Ukraine. Uh, so now we understand that Russia needs soldiers. So here is um, um, here's some of the problem. Here's a well, for example, who is this uh, talking right now, Eric? It says, okay, never mind. Um, so right now they need soldiers. What are they doing? Because so many people have left rather than serve. Yes, but, you know, um, there are several very depressive regions of Russia. Uh, and they and they are um, looking for volunteers uh, in those depressive, distant re- regions in Siberia, for example. And they are paying a lot. And they managed to create the system when uh, they are paying, like, 20 times as much as the average salary in the region, and pe- people are volunteering. They, they are ready to die uh, in exchange for a big sum of money uh, paid to their families. So now it is, the NATO has been unified. It's been expanded. Mm-hmm. Finland and Sweden. Yeah. What, what do you think really um, – what, what do you think – Norway and, Sweden, uh, Norway and uh, Finland. Sweden. Sweden and Finland. So what do you think that Vladimir Putin thinks about this? Uh, you know, I think that uh, his um, so-called obsession with NATO is a big lie. He's not—he's not frightened of NATO. 
that's that's his internal propaganda. He he uses that um, myth of Russia as a besieged fortress and uh, myth of uh, the eternal fight bec- uh, between Russia and NATO uh, just to to remain in power. That's the only way how he he can persuade um, a big part of the population that uh, he is the only guarantor of the of the peace of the stability and so on. So some people who are against and trying to rationalize Russia's decision have said, well, we're the ones who broke our word that when Gorbachev made a deal with Reagan and Bush, he said, listen, you can have Germany. Just I don't want to see NATO in any of these Eastern Eastern Bloc countries. I don't want to see them become NATO nations. Well, Clinton went ahead and said, Poland, you can do it. And all the Baltics are there. And we know about the nations of Hungary. They're, they are they are NATO nations. So do, is Putin, does Putin have a legitimate complaint? You know, um, when Putin has just become a president, he uh, openly proposed Russia to to join NATO, and he asked uh, George W. Bush to uh, to to greet them, to greet him. He want he wanted Russia to be, to be part of NATO. He he was discussing it with uh, that time NATO Secretary General uh, Lord Robertson uh, from Britain. So so he was not hostile against NATO from the beginning, and the the idea of Russia as a part of NATO didn't seem to be horrible for him. But he, he wanted to be really respected. He wanted uh, to be important. He, he wanted Russia to be a superpower, even inside NATO. And, and he couldn't achieve that. He, he couldn't achieve that uh, level of personal um, importance in, uh, in the eyes of George W. Bush. And that uh, was the beginning of his paranoia. And then um, Orange Revolution started in Ukraine, and he has become even more paranoid. He started thinking that, that Americans want to topple him. And he, ha- he was becoming more and more paranoid all of, the, all, all of those years. He includes Hillary Clinton doing that. Um, yes, he he's got uh, his personal foot uh, against Hillary Clinton because uh, because of the huge protest rallies in Russia in 2011, 2012, which were not organized by Hillary Clinton. Uh, she she could not <laughs> do that, but he thought that uh, it was State Department uh, who um, who organized it, and he, uh, he, he was not exactly right. <laughs> and by the way, my guest is Mikhail Zigar. Yeah, Zigar. He's a Russian journalist and author of a new book, War and Punishment. So he's bringing us inside Russia. So the the revolution, the green revolution inside Ukraine, was it the green? green? Orange, 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 orange. Sorry, I know Senator McCain was there supporting them. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems that Ukraine wants to be West. They want to be part of the European Union. That's Obviously, true. even before the invasion, dying to be part of NATO. NATO was like, you're not ready yet. And plus, they thought that would be a problem for Russia because Russia always thought, I guess, to a degree that they should be closer to them. Ukraine has a different mindset than Vladimir Putin understands. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, And uh, in my my book, I write a lot about the the differences between Russians and Ukrainians, different history, different culture, different language, although Putin truly believes that uh, Russians and Ukrainians are the same people. And he has done a huge job alienating Ukrainians. Uh, He was pushing so hard in uh, uh, twenty. Um, in 2004, uh, to install pro-Russian candidate Yanukovych as the new president, and that that was a terrible, that was worse than a mistake. He, they hated him. Yeah, absolutely. The Ukrainians hated him. Absolutely, absolutely. They kicked him out. Yes, absolutely. They had an election. He lost. He was gone. He goes into Russia, mm-hmm. and then Russia does what? Uh, Takes and, Crimea. That, and then Russia occupied Crimea. Yeah, um, you know, Putin has a lot of prejudice against Ukrainians, uh, partially because of his. 
his background as a KGB officer, partially because of his uh, old-time um, friends uh, who were children of very well-known Soviet academicians, Soviet historians, who were specializing on two things, uh, on the Cold War and uh, American cons conspiracy against Russia, against Soviet Union. And the second one, uh, the father of his closest friend, Yuri Kovalchuk, uh, was specializing on history of Crimea. So Putin is one of the few people in, in Russia who believes that Crimea is the symbol of of Russian statehood. That's very, that's very rare. Does he believe that Russian speakers want to be in Russia? Like, for example, the Russian speakers in Ukraine, uh, in the Donbass region, in Odessa. Evidently, there's mm -hmm. some in Odessa. They speak Russian. Now they're going to go. Even no, in Kiev. Yeah. In Kiev. So the fact that they speak Russian, did he, did he legitimately misinterpret their allegiance to Russia as opposed to their country? Yeah, he really doesn't understand that, that during the last 30 years, uh, a lot of new generations uh, uh, grew up in Ukraine, and those people do not consider themselves to be Russian colony. They do not consider themselves to be part of Russia. They they are Ukrainians, even though they they are speaking Russian or Ukrainian. They have absolutely different mentality. They want to be to be part of the Western world. They want to be part of the democratic world, and they don't want to to serve to Vladimir Putin. Last question for you: uh, When we watch Prigozhin and Wagner get within a, a couple hundred miles of Moscow. Prigozhin gets a deal, gets a gets a base reportedly in Belarus. The Wagner Group reports there's some video out. What's happened to him since? What happens to the Wagner Group? How much is the war effort hurt by them not participating in it for Russia? Uh, I don't think that it would cause any real troubles for for Russian troops because yeah, the the, the front line is is rather stable. And Russian army can can do now without Prigozhin and without Wagner Group, but it's really it's really weird what what has happened to him and what why why he's not in Belarus, for example, because uh, according to my sources, he spends a lot of time not in Belarus but in Saint Petersburg in his ho hometown. He's alive. He's alive and he's at home uh, in uh, President Putin's hometown, and um, and he he's still trying to. Uh, trying to maintain his business. Because he didn't want to take to overthrow Vladimir Putin, you're saying? Yeah, that's important. That's important because he personally remains loyal to President Putin. He just hates the generals around him. He hates the system, the, the, the bureaucracy, the army, but he's still Putin's man. How does this end? Uh, I hope, and I think, according to, to many of my sources, another coup is possible. So uh, Putin's system is not that stable as it seemed to be uh, a year ago. How does the war end? Uh, only after he's gone, unfortunately. He will never stop. He will never will stop. Will he begin to lose? Medvedev says if he begins to lose, they're going to start thinking about nuclear weapons. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He won't use it because uh, he had warning from the Chinese uh, who don't who don't want him to to start a, a nuclear war and won't let uh, him do that. But he does need the the truce. He does need the peace. He wants to continue the, uh, this war. If it, even if it's a stalemate, that's okay for for him. A frozen conflict is okay for him because he is the president of of, of the war. The only way for him to um, to remain in power in Russia to hold the power is is to be the war uh, leader. And the Ukraine, and the grain deal. Uh, he hates the grain deal. Yeah. He. So he's going to stop it. He's, he's going to stop it. Yeah. He's not going to feel pressure from Turkey and others. With starving people in Africa, you just met with all these African leaders. He's not going to feel pressure. He wants to be a respected global leader, as he as he perceives it. He wants to to make uh, deals directly with Africans. He he wants to be to be some kind of uh, the leader of the USSR, uh, who is 
who who can feel influential in Africa, in Asia, in in uh, um, in different regions of the world, not only in Ukraine. Why does he like Trump? Um, you know, I think that uh, he believes, and I think that he's wrong. He believes that uh, once um, Trump is back in the uh, in the White House, he would stop uh, support of Ukraine. Uh, and I personally think that that would be a mistake for for the United States because because Ukraine is the is the ally is a very important country is a truly democratic nation that doesn't see itself to be to be part of part of Russia and I I think that that Putin is wrong uh, in in his perception of uh, uh, American position towards Ukraine. I'm impressed with Zelensky. Are you? Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Hey, pick up Mikhail Zeiger's book. He's a Russian journalist, a brave guy, author of a new book, War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky, and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Mikhail, you're also known as a badass in war. <laughs> so I appreciate you bringing that here. Thank you. Thank All right. You. Thanks for having me. Back in a moment. Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back. I don't know if you've been watching the Women's World Cup, but if you're a sports fan, not much else going on. Football camps, who cares? But you have uh, baseball, training deadline, kind of interesting. Basketball preseason, NHL, it's nothing that matters. You really don't care about those last two sports until until the winter after Christmas. So the Women's World Cup takes front and center. For me, I'm sold on it. I loved uh, watching it, covered it. Uh, really since the 90s. But this women's national team is so inexperienced and so disjointed. They've not played. They're all athletes. And they're playing just athletically. They're not playing cohesively. They barely beat. They beat Vietnam. They should have crushed and they beat 3 nothing. The second game, they tied Netherlands. Have to come back to do it. And then in Portugal, a tie to get through, a win uh, to, get, to get in first. They tie. And in overtime, a ball hit the post. Portugal almost eliminated them in a cup that we are going for a three-peat. By the way, Fox Sports has the coverage. It would be a disaster for us. And after the game, they're celebrating. Carly Lloyd, the best if the best all-around American soccer player, in my view, in the history of women's soccer, retired just this year, longtime captain. She's now with Fox Sports. Listen to what she said. I have never witnessed, and just seeing these images for the first time right now on the desk, I have never witnessed something like that. There's a difference between... Being respectful of the fans and saying hello to your family, but to be dancing, to be smiling. I mean, the player of the match was that post. You're lucky to not be going home right now. And they were celebrating, dancing, taking pictures with the other team, having a good time and say, hey, we accomplished our goal. When they realize how close they get to be eliminated, they're now in the round of 16. And they got to do some serious thinking to play better. I think there's like seven teams better than them right now. I don't know how they close the gap. I don't know the roster like I used to, but if you're going to watch, if, they, if that wasn't the ultimate wake-up call, and this has made huge news, her calling out, these were her former teammates just six months ago. For her to say that to about her friends shows what a great broadcaster she is or what a true leader she is. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I am back, back in action here at 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. Man, it's been a lot going on since I've been gone. Been able to track it, keep up with it, and understand it. 
Uh, Bill McGurn's going to be with us in a matter of moments, the Wall Street Journal. And when you talk about what's going on, of course, you're going to be talking about uh, the Trump charges. Third, uh, He's got his third indictment now tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern time. That's Thursday. He's going to be asked to go in front of a court and hear, hear the indictment. And then, of course, they're going to go to their corners. And we're probably going to hear about a need for a speedy trial for Jack Smith. Why? Because you want to affect the election. No doubt about it. And then another thing you're going to hear about is where are we going to fit on the calendar? Because you have so much information here. He's got a brand-new legal team. He's got another legal team working on the Alvin Bragg case, another legal team working on the Mar-a-Lago case that Jack Smith brought forward. Another one's going to be needed for the Georgia case. Almost all the money he's raising, which is really high, is going to his legal fees, and his poll numbers keep going up. But the other big story is what's happened with Hunter Biden and the revelations about what he was up to, all those disturbing bank reports, all those shell companies, Devin Archer going behind closed doors, his business partner, backing up uh, in many ways what Tony Bobulinski has been saying, and Joe Biden known to admit it to about 20 separate times, either calling in or showing up at his business meeting, showing that he is, in fact, a liar. That did not elude Bill McGurn, member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. He writes for the weekly Main Street column, and he pointed out, that when Joe Biden got elected, he flat out lied, especially in the debate and still lies today. I never discussed with my son his overseas business operations. That is just not true. Bill, welcome back. Hi, Brian. How you doing? I just love the point. You know, it, people are going and, and focusing on the indictment. It's news. I get it. But you pointed out, too, how much Joe, how many lies Joe Biden gets away with. But how important is it to point out that he flat out lied to the American people about the laptop he said about the 51 intel experts, he lied and said they said it's Russian disinformation when he knew it was his son's laptop and he knew the information was real. And then he lied again about not being in these business meetings. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you read the debate over, which I did this week, um, they're pretty damning because Joe Biden left himself no wiggle room. He was categorical. He didn't know anything about his son's uh, business and it's denied that his son made millions overseas in places like Ukraine and China. Problem with that is Hunter Biden um, in court admitted to taking a small fortune uh, from Ukraine and China and other places. So um, I think he has a, he, the problem is he never pressed for an answer. They let him get away with a flat statement. I never had anything to do. I never, um, discussed my son's business. Now I never was in my son's business, which he didn't even say, his press secretary said, and they never pressed further. So here is the transcript uh, that you were able to pull out and refer to in your column. Uh, And he says, uh, Trump says, China ate your lunch and no wonder your son goes in and what? He walks out with billions of dollars. He takes billions of dollars to manage. He makes billions of dollars and millions. And also while we're at it, well, why is he just out of curiosity? The mayor of Moscow's wife gave you your son three and a half million dollars. He then asks, what did he do with Burisma? Although Biden declared this is not true. He said it eight times. It seven times said that Mr. Trump's assertions were discredited, sometimes totally discredited. Near the end, he added, my son did nothing wrong with Burisma. So all this stuff is blowing up. All these words are blowing up in his face. But it seems that Bill McGurn is the only one that seems to care. Well, I think the Republican candidate in 2024 will care. And I think it's a, a uh, the president has to be prepared for someone who's going to attack. Last time you were on stage, 
um, you told the American people some untruth. Do you want to apologize now? And how can we believe anything else you now say since you didn't um, you didn't give us the truth in 2020? Devin Archer testified Monday, and they keep saying, well, he never def- directly implicated Joe. But 20 times Joe parachuted into these meetings to talk about the weather. You think the American people are going to buy that? No, and I think uh, the best point on well, two things about that. One, if you're into a bribery illicit scheme, you don't discuss the quid pro quo, much less on speakerphone where you're not aware of who of all the people in the room. It's all little signals and so forth. What they did is um, Hunter would make his deal, then he, and it would be some fact, I can get my father, I can produce my father. And then Hesso Presso, he produces his father on the phone. Um, so I think, I think uh, when you combine that with all the shell companies, with the statements not only by Archer but by Bobolinsky and others that Joe was um, was in on it, uh, I think it's very damning. So Devin Archer testified, and people are saying, why didn't he blow up the Bidens? Number one, he knows he's going to go to jail for a year and a day. Mysteriously, a letter turns up saying that we need a date for him to report to jail on Saturday, 48 hours before he's about to go behind closed doors. An arrest could even have been made prior to that. And if you also look at a text exchange between them when Devin Archer thought he was being got, got away with it, it was since reversed, now he's going to jail soon. Uh, they talk about, they have an exchange where they talk about what great friends they are. I love you like a brother. Hunter, I love you too. I really mean it. Uh, we're going to work this out. This is the first win we've had in a while. These guys are tight. Why did any Republican or Democrat think for a second that Devin Archer, even for his own resp- making sure there was no punishment in jail that to lengthen that sentence or possibly shorten it. What makes anybody think that he's going to go turn on, uh, on, on Hunter Biden? He already got sentenced. Right. And not only that, I, I believe he still could face other charges. So um, I think that they want the full story. The house would have to arrange for immunity in exchange for his testimony. Um, because my guess is he knows a lot more than he even told Monday. Um, But look, it all gets back to um, the unbelievability that all these shell companies, these payments to uh, like nine members of the Biden family, including one of Joe's grandchildren, that's all innocent. I I think it beggars belief. I want you to hear Jim Jordan just runs through some of the timeline. Cut 22. They're having a board meeting in Dubai on December 4th, 2015. After the board meeting, Hunter Biden meets with Devin Archer, Zolachevsky, and Pizarski, the two key guys who run Burisma. They meet for drinks. During that meeting, they say, we need the U.S. government to intervene. We're under pressure from the prosecutor. We're facing pressure in Great Britain because they've sanctioned and seized our assets, 23 million pounds, $23 million in Britain. We need some help. They make a phone call to D.C. Mr. Archer, I don't know who they call, but they call D.C., And five days later, December 9th, 2015, Joe Biden is in Ukraine and he gives a speech starting the pressure on the prosecutor in Ukraine. Five days after that meeting, five days after a phone call to D.C., five days where they used the Biden brand, according to what we learned today, the Biden brand was the value Hunter Biden brought to this business arrangement. And then here's what he would say in recounting what he ended up doing. Cut 23. 
They were walking out to press conference. Said, "No, nah. I said I'm not going to. We're not going to give you the billion dollars." They said, "You have no authority. You're not the president." The president said, "I said call him." <laughs> I said, "I'm telling you, you're not getting a billion dollars." I said, "You're not getting a billion. I'm going to be leaving here." And I think it was what six hours. I looked. I said, "I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money." Well, son of a bitch, <laughs> got fired, and they put in place someone who was solid at the time. Oh, that guy have ended up pursu- was pursuing Burisma and investigation of Burisma. People pointed out that other people had problems with this guy, Victor Shokin, in the past. I can't do the best of Ukrainian politics and corruption. But that sent it. That, that story keeps coming back and rounding itself out, Bill McGurn. Yeah. And, and we constantly hear Trump brought that up in the debate, accused Biden of shaking down Ukraine, using American aid to do it. And we keep hearing that that's not true. It had nothing to do with Biden. But again, we're asked to suspend belief. Joe Biden is on tape admitting he pressured the government to fire the prosecutor. And the um, we have the testimony now. Burisma uh, wanted the prosecutor fired. They were pressuring Hunter. You know, what conclusions are we to draw? And that, that brings up a larger issue. You know, um, uh, Hunter was threatened with a, a prosecution under FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And if he's charged, it could mean Joe Biden was schlepping him around in Air Force Two when he's acting on a foreign agent. He had a very curious habit of getting fat contracts in countries where Joe was involved. Like it wasn't Brazil. It wasn't um it wasn't uh, uh, some place in Africa. It was uh, uh, Ukraine, where Joe, Joe was point man, and Romania, where he's point man on corruption. Um, it, it just is incredible that we're asked to believe this is all a coincidence. Bill, what's the level of interest over at the Wall Street Journal in the in the Hunter Biden story as it relates to Joe? Would you say they believe that there's a lot there and more to come? Do you say there is just one of the many stories that's on your radar? I think uh, it's the same as our um, interest in the Russia collusion. We want the truth. We're, there's too much stuff that doesn't add up, and we would like to have the truth. That's far more important that the American people know what happened than anyone goes to jail. Uh, unfortunately, the um, the uh, emphasis is all on criminal prosecution. But, um, you know, now there are uh, legitimate questions about the investigation raised by the IRS and the FBI whistleblowers. So um, it's very important for Americans to learn, can they trust their Department of Justice and FBI? You believe the time is coincidental between every time something damning comes (laughs) up for Joe and Hunter, something comes up about Trump? No, I don't. I think I think Donald Trump is another case. You know, it's very messy. I I think this uh, Jack Smith was the wrong man, given his past, um, given the rebuke of the Supreme Court of him for his aggressive prosecution style. I think he was the wrong one to be making these decisions. But I think they they have to be mm-hmm. taken one by one. Some are very damning. I think Mar-a-Lago charges are more troubling for Donald Trump. I think he has a legitimate defense in a lot of the other ones. Yeah, including this one. The the, the charges are 
uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and a conspiracy against rights. Good luck with that. Part of Jack Smith's presentation yesterday, which he was inexplicably shakingly nervous, as if someone just dragged him out of a, a, a freshman law school class, as opposed to a guy that's wearing robes in The Hague. But having said that, listen to this. I just look at this as ridiculous. Cut three. The men and women of law enforcement who defended the U.S. Capitol on January 6th are heroes. They are patriots and they are the very best of us. They did not just defend a building or the people sheltering in it. They put their lives in the line to defend who we are as a country. And Does he think we don't know this? Does he think he has to add color commentary? What about a, what about a catchy montage of the of the actions, he should be up there explaining himself, not not pulling on the heartstrings to back law enforcement, which everyone does. I mean, I was shocked by that. Yeah. Um, previously, I thought James Comey was about the most sanctimonious person in um, in uh, in the country when it comes to uh, talking about the law and so forth. But I think Jack Smith gives him a good run for the bunny. So disappointing. Uh, so I guess we're going to have an indictment in Georgia soon. And we'll just wait for the next, uh, I guess, uh, Devin Archer release from prison or 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 maybe the next plea deal that, that comes front and center. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Brian, the last thing I would say is just the really sad thing is over the last, you know, seven years or so, the way everything's been cheapened, impeachment has been cheapened, contempt has been cheapened, the inspectors general have been has been cheapened, the um, plea arrangements have been cheapened. Everything has been cheapened. Supreme Court. And that goes way beyond Hunter Biden and Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And I think we're going to be paying the price for a long, long time. I just none of this addressing the country. I don't care which side you're on. None of this addresses the country's needs, our debt, our need to build up the military, to to solidify our presence in Central and South America, to push back against China wherever we go. Those are the things that really go to affect people's lives, backing up our border, not overrolling our cities, finding a way to crack down on crime uh, in a respectable, responsible way. None of this stuff ever comes up. We're talking about things 2020. Uh, and then we're going to have an election, and I'm sure whoever wins or loses is going to have a problem with the result. But, uh, Bill, thanks so much for chronicling it. Appreciate your column as usual. Okay, have a great day. All right, 1-866-408-7669. Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. And it's just a good example of... Could everybody just stop the posturing? Don't pretend that you love migrants so much, and then when we send them to you, you don't like them. You know? Mm-hmm. You're full of and we can see that. Yeah, you like them when it wasn't your problem because you're not a border state. <laughs> and then when they show up in Chicago and New York, you're like, what the What's are we going to do with these people? Yeah. You know? And... There's got to be a solution to this that is compassionate, 
So that is Bill Maher talking to Sharon Osbourne about the illegal immigrants in our country. By the way, that's an issue in Italy, too. I heard a lot of people talking about it in Italy uh, because they're getting refugees from Libya and Syria and they're flooding their borders and they're using a lot of the social services and people are getting a little resentful of it. Uh, Bill Maher, just speaking logically, they say he's left the left. He hasn't left the left. You got to be kidding me. That's just a logical way to do it. And if you look at these other liberal mayors like Mayor Adams, no one thinks he's a righty. He says at the beginning, he was like, yeah, let me help you out. We're going to show you an open arms. Now all our hotels are sold out and they're welling up in our streets and we're trying to ship them to the outskirts of New York, uh, whether it's Long Island, whether it's SUNY dorms, whether it's upstate in Buffalo. And we can't even do it fast enough and people are pushing back on it. Madison Allworth knows all about it, uh, our extraordinary reporter at Fox, now with Fox Business. She's out in front of the Roosevelt Hotel, I think, today, Madison, if I'm right. Is that correct? She's next segment, Brian. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you got She's, so excited. That was pretty good. When, <laughs> when she comes, when she, when I, I thought she was joining me now, my bad. So when Madison joins us from outside Roosevelt Hotel, you'll see this hotel that they mothballed. They were done with it. But they have nowhere to put people. So they had to open it up again. I have no idea what condition a hotel is if it's just vacant for two years. So they put people in the hotel. It is now filled up. They have now passed a mandate that you can't stay here. If you're an illegal, you got 60 days. If you're a male without kids, then you got to go somewhere else. And now they have people outside the hotel. So what they did is, they, okay, we're going to bus them to Buffalo. So they bus them to Buffalo where the governor lives and or used to live. And they get to Buffalo, and the Buffalo goes, we're not taking them. You didn't even process their paperwork. We don't even know who they are. So they go eight hours up to Buffalo and get sent eight hours back. And then they end up sleeping on cardboard boxes outside the Roosevelt Hotel. All right, Madison Allworth has that story. Plus, what's been happening today, is it true that New York might reverse their sanctuary status? The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's not going to get any better. Uh, from from this moment on, it's downhill. Uh, there is no more room. Eventually, this was going to come to a neighborhood near you. Having someone embedded is a good start. That, that came from the Secretary of Homeland Security. We want to thank him. But I've been very clear on what we need. We need to control the border. We need to call a state of emergency, and we need to properly fund this national crisis. And that is Mayor Adams, desperate. I don't care what you think of him, whether you voted for him, what party you belong to. He is overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed, and it's costing the city millions of dollars to house, to feed, to clothe, and attract more. Go to the bus station, give them what they need, let alone any medical attention, uh, let alone any employment as well as shipping in their people out, making sure they go get out after a while because we can't sustain them for the rest of their lives. Madison Allworth knows this, Fox Business correspondent based in New York. Uh, Madison, we've been watching you all day, give updates. I think you're out. Are you outside the Roosevelt Hotel? Hey, Brian. Yes, I am. I'm outside the Roosevelt Hotel, which is both a shelter, but also the migrant intake center. So any migrant that comes to New York and wants housing here, has to be processed at this hotel. So how desperate is the situation? So this is my second day in a row being here. I've been at the Roosevelt Hotel since it opened as the intake center four times. These last two days are the worst days that I have seen. It is an unmanageable situation. 
um, the line wraps around the corner and many of the faces that I saw yesterday are still here today. We've been able to talk to some migrants, some of whom are from Africa, some of whom are from Venezuela. We've heard from folks that have spent three nights here, some who say they have spent four nights here. And when I say nights, what I mean is these people are sleeping on the sidewalk. There's cardboard. When we got here this morning, um, most of the folks in line were sleeping on the ground. And um, as you've been saying, we've been reporting on it on air. What you can't like experience from those reports is unfortunately also the smell because these folks don't want to lose their spot in line. Some are not leaving and they are um, going to the bathroom on themselves. So this block in Manhattan is serving as a bedroom, bathroom, and kitchen because food is being handed out here as well. How insane is this? And now you have a desperate situation where some of these people went up eight-hour trips to Buffalo, found out they didn't have the right paperwork and processing, so Buffalo sent them back? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the problem. These folks that are waiting in line here are not trying to, uh, well, they would like to, I'm sure, but they're really waiting in line to get processed here. I don't think they expect to actually get shelter in the Roosevelt Hotel because this is one of the shelters that's being reserved for families. Most of the people in this line here are single adult males. I really don't know if I can actually, from my vantage point, see any women at the line in the line at this point. So they're not waiting in line to get shelter. They're waiting in line to be processed. And so they're just standing, so, you know, four days of waiting just to be processed, not to even get that shelter. And like you said, if they wind up somewhere where they don't have their papers, because that's how supposedly we're supposed to track these people who, by the way, still haven't been vetted and have no background checks or whatnot, um, you know, yeah, that's not surprising to me that a city would turn them away and say, we have no, there's no record of you in the New York City system, how are we going to give you free housing, free health care, free education when we don't know who you are and like how long you've been here and where you are in the asylum court system? So, so Madison, they cannot supposed to get jobs, right? Uh, so That's correct, Brian. Yeah. So, so they have nothing to do all day. So we give them food they don't necessarily like. You know, it's not up to us to give a menu, but it's from a different culture. Uh, they have nothing to do. They don't have any money. Uh, they look to do things on the street create havoc on the street. I'm not saying they're criminals. I don't don't know who they are, but that's the bottom line is even the mayor, all officials, we can't sustain this. We have a city that's over-budgeted by millions of dollars, and money, our taxpayer dollars, are going to these hotels to house these people and feed them where they get all this stuff for free. It's unsustainable, and the federal government's not helping out. Yeah, I mean, so as you mentioned, um, Mayor, New York City Mayor Eric Adams went to D.C. last week, met with uh, Secretary Mayorkas of the Department of Homeland Security, asked for expedited work visas, more federal funding, a declaration of an emergency. What we got is a liaison from DHS who will be based in New York to, quote, better the communication between DHS and New York. The response from Democrats on this has been strong. There is real frustration that this is the assistance that we're getting at this point when you have people sleeping on the streets for four days. When you talk about federal assistance financially, FEMA has sent about $104 million to New York City. Let me put that, let me contextualize that for you. The crisis is expected to cost New York City $4.3 billion by next June. $104 million covers about 13 days of the crisis here in New York. And you're absolutely right, right. When it comes, we don't have money in New York. And so, you know, we're in a deficit. There's already all these budgeting issues. So what's happening now, because this is a crisis that needs to be dealt with immediately, they are routing funding for other city programs to migrants. So taxpaying individuals in New York who rely on summer programs, different assistance, et cetera, 
or maybe seeing some of those programs cut. And then, of course, when it comes to the housing aspect, um, you know, we're running out of space. That's why people are sleeping on the streets because our shelter system has doubled in the course of one year because of the migrant crisis. We have doubled the amount of people that are staying in our shelters and we still don't have enough space. So we have a, a press conference from City Hall that should be happening right now. What we're expecting is an announcement of where these folks are going to go. What I'm hearing is uh, Randall's Island, um, the soccer kidding? field there. Are you which kidding? Is a bit, no, and, and so I don't want to confirm this because, again, this is we saw reports of this. I reached out to City Hall. The response that I got was, all options are on the table. As we said again, over 90,000 migrants have come to New York. We're running out of space. We're running out of options. And that's kind of the classic, because I constantly am reaching out to them to say, are you moving migrants here? Are you moving migrants there? And the, the consistent response is, all options are on the table, which is also not a no. So take that for what you will. Uh, but we are expecting some sort of update about additional housing, because we have people sleeping on the street for four nights. And, and for those of you that uh, don't live in New York City or maybe haven't been here before, this Roosevelt Hotel is right outside of Grand Central, which is for commuters and for tourists. This is one of the busiest train stations in the entire country. And you exit the train station, and this is what you see. This is also an area that has a lot of business. This is a financial hub. Walking around the street in this area, you have a ton of business men and women that work in our financial institutions that try to frequent the businesses in this area. I'm staring at, I'm staring at Amos restaurant. It's a Greek seafood restaurant, delicious, right across the street from the hotel. The owner tells me reservations are down 50% in one week because his sidewalk is just covered in migrants. It's an untenable situation. The, the New York mayor is telling him to turning the, the mayor is telling the president to control the border. Mallorca says, well, well, since Title eight, the numbers are down. The numbers might be down at the border at the at places where you should be signing in. But they're being flown here from other countries because we can process them with an app in other countries. So we do it there and then we fly them into Westchester, fly them into MacArthur, right. perhaps, or the smaller station in the middle of the night. The next thing you know, they're in the school system. Uh, they're in. Yes. They're weighing on our social, uh, uh, our social security system, our social safety net system, and they might be the best people in the world. Nobody's anti-immigrant here, but that's not the point. How does this end? Right, and there needs to be system and order because absolutely. I mean, look, I'm I'm the product of immigration. Um, there is a process. This is a nation that's built on immigrants. So let's not forget that. But let's also not forget that there needs to be process and order and. Um, at this point, it's also like, I mean, I'm staring at it. It's really disheartening. It's not fair to these people who are also sleeping on the streets for four nights and going to the bathroom on themselves. Nothing about this is okay. True. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is they said it's going to affect every city near you. So these SUNY school systems, that's our state university system. They're going into Old Westbury on Long Island. They're going to Stony Brook on Long Island. So they're going to just show up. So you have your 17 or 21-year-old kid walking around campus and say, what's with that family of six staying in the other dorm across the way you know, or staying in the gym? And the SUNY system, which you know have kind of discounted tuition – you really you got to tell the governor the governor's decisions there that really not many people are going to going to act on this they're going to start hiding them there but what do they do during the day they put them in JFK and hangars if they put them in Randall's Island those soccer fields are active maybe 20 hours a day with all pickup right. games and organized fields you're going to affect every New York kid and their family yeah yeah and i think the New York families are already being impacted but it's getting to a point now where um 
it's hard to escape. Uh, I mean, if you walk in this area, you can't escape the crisis. It's in front of your face. But this is a big city, so it is easy with what's been going on. Is there's been different pockets where they've essentially been just kind of parked because, like you said, these migrants, these asylum seekers, they are not able to work. It typically takes about two years to get working papers, which is a, a whole other subject because that is something that the mayor is calling for. But I've really done some reporting on both sides of it. There's a lot of people saying we want the migrants to work so that they can pay for their stay. Uh, there's also a counter argument to say that further incentivizes. Already New York City is saying, hey, come here. We'll house you. We'll feed you. We'll educate your kids. We'll get you health care. And then if you also say, and we'll get you a job, I don't know how that makes the, the problem better <laughs> other than it maybe helps fix the financial aspect of some Short of the term. financial aspect of this. But then where will get yeah, back? I mean, yeah, we're just going to get back and they go, you come to New York, you got a job and a free house. Right, right. And and if things have gotten so bad because, like you said, you know, they cross the border. There's a, what I when I hear from the migrants is there's multiple ways that they're getting to New York. Sometimes it's states that are sending them here. Sometimes it's nonprofit organizations, and sometimes it's them themselves because they have other friends that have done it, or they're hearing from people at the border. Go to New York. They have all of these things. It's gotten so bad that the mayor's office actually is starting to distribute flyers along the border in English and Spanish that say how we've already had 90,000 people come. New York City is one of the most expensive cities to live in in the world. Um, it's, there's no guarantee that if you come here, you get a bed, which is a fascinating point, Brian. I think you made this earlier. New York City is a sanctuary city. What I am hearing, um, I've spoken to a number of council members and assembly members in New York City. What I've heard from Councilman Bob Holden, he's a Democrat from Queens, is that New York City is exploring revoking its sanctuary city status because things have gotten so bad. But his explanation, when that was created, the idea being, if you are a New Yorker and you come down on your luck, and you're homeless, we guarantee we're going to house you. Uh, that's kind of how it's established. Now, what it's turned into is you cross into the city, you cross into New York, and if you say, I need a house, we'll provide it. It's a little, you know, you can see the difference there between homeless residents that maybe used to pay for an apartment or have a job here versus asylum seekers. Because it has become so unmanageable, it's now gotten to a point where a huge Democrat-run city is considering revoking sanctuary status. I think it says a lot about what we're dealing with. And you remember what happened when Trump tried to do that, uh, Madison, where they, they fought back, they sued him in court, they went through a series of court system, and the sanctuary, sta- sanctuary status stood. And that's why yes. governor of Texas started saying, okay, you sanctuary cities, here you go, Washington, D.C., here you go, Chicago, have at it, New York. And now it is flat out overwhelming everywhere. You just can't put six million people uh, and just hope they blend in when they have no right. jobs, in many cases, no skills, and many are instant burden. Don't speak English. Yeah, don't speak English. And I feel bad for these teachers. All of a sudden, they turn up, they they have four more kids that don't speak English, and it's not necessarily Spanish, the next language. So the whole right. class I mean, like gets I said, slowed down. In this down. line, we have, we have Spanish speakers. We have French speakers, um, you know, we because there's many people in this line that are from Africa. Um, speaking native tongue from that region as well. So even within the line itself, there's been a lot of miscommunication because your neighbor that you're standing next to and sleeping next to might not speak the same language as you, and maybe none of you speak English. Yeah, Madison, uh, too bad. You could probably cover this story every day, but I know they won't let you. Uh, but it's not going away. <laughs> Madison Allworth, no, thanks. So- I'm sure I'll be on it again soon. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Go get it, Madison. Thank you. one 408 I see the lines up there. I'll try to get through as many calls as possible. Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. 
If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There are reports that say that you have the lowest approval rating of any vice president. I'm curious how much of a role, if any, that you feel race and gender play in that. Well, there are polls that also say I have great approval ratings. I think the point that has to be made is that there are attempts to create distractions away from the accomplishments of our administration. Well, I love to see those polls. Has anyone seen a poll that said Kamala Harris has great approval ratings? Is anyone? Please, I beg of you, if you could find that, I would love to see one poll. Even if it's written in crayon that says he's doing a great job. And by the way, she's totally skewering the whole slavery issue and what is in the history books and the curriculum in Florida. And she's refusing to debate. Uh, John in California. Hey, John. Good morning, Brian. Welcome back. I missed you over the last week or so. Well, thanks so much. I'm glad to be back. So much going on. What's happening in California? Oh, my gosh. Um, I just wanted to bring up uh, my biggest worry about the future elections is the lack of support that uh, the the candidates are having uh, for ballot harvesting. And I want to know what's going on with the the, the, competing with the Democrats. And we got to play in the sandbox with them. We got to play as dirty as they are. And I don't think Ronan McDaniels has been in, you know, Trump has been getting the blame all this time about people voting the other way and losing losing people in Congress and so forth. But, I mean, look what happened in New Jersey. The governorship was within our grasp. No support from the Republican Party. We won in Virginia, luckily, to lack of support from the Republican Party. Well, I, yeah, John, no- John, here's the thing. The president was bad when he said, I, I only want you showing up on Election Day. I, and that was during the pandemic. That did not help him. He won Election Day, but he didn't win the election. And I think you're right. If whatever it takes, tell me the rules and I'll and I'll find a way to win. You can't just say I don't like the rules and I don't love ballot harvesting. I don't like election season. I love Election Day the best you can. You're handicapped. You have a situation you're in the military. You have a legitimate reason. No excuse. Mail in balloting, I think, is a problem. I really do. If you have to take a day off from work and you can't, that that's the excuse. And mail it in if you have to. But drive up voting, the, the drop boxes, whatever it is. The drive-up voting is just met uh, is is ripe for some type of of scandal. But I, I would say I think they are gotten much better at it. I think she is up to it. She at least she says that, and I've not seen anything different yet. So you do have to do it. President Trump's got to stay on the same play, page, though. He can't tell everyone show up at election day if he can't. Don't show up. That would that was not helpful. James uh, KCRS in Odessa, Texas. James. Yeah, Brian. I think I might read Mayor Adams a touch different than yourself. I don't see him really asking to solve how many people are coming over at the border. He's just asking for more money to deal with it and to for it to be more organized. I, I don't know that I've really heard him say, let's stop it. Uh, he has he has talked about that, and the, the thing is, you're right, James. He does talk more about I, I I can't afford this, but number two is he can he went on to the border to try where where you are in Texas to try to see what the problem is and can you stop it? And he met with me, and said there's just too many people coming here. Darlene, WABC, Darlene. Okay, do you mean Arlene? Okay, Arlene, what's on your mind over in Dutchess County? Oh, 
Oh, yes, uh, Brian, uh, pleasure to speak to you. Okay, I have three very quick points here. Uh, one is to stop calling the illegal aliens migrants. Every time I hear that word, I cringe. I hear you. They are not migrants. They are illegal aliens. Let's properly identify the problem, and then we can come to a solution. Yes, and stop saying undocumented. No, they're undocumented because they snuck in. They came here illegally. Uh, their case has to be adjudicated. And now I think it's up to six years. So you walk in the border, you get processed, have at it for six years. Go in the swings, try the malls, uh, go in the playground, got plenty of field turf. Have a great time. Thanks for listening. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.